I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 5th, 2019. Coming up, we'll hear about a new method for identifying the individual species in our gut microbiome that can carry genes for antibiotic resistance. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. You may have heard of Denisova Cave, a remote archaeological site near Russia's borders with Mongolia and China. The site gets its name, according to legends, from an 18th century hermit who lived there. In the past decade, the site has become legendary among modern-day gene hunters who have found a treasure of ancient bones from hominins, that is, species of homo other than our own. These paleogenomicists, as they're called, tested piles of bones to identify those of hominin origin, discarding those from bears, bison, hyenas, and even mammoths and rhinoceros. Ten years ago, researchers identified a novel species that they called Denisovan on the basis of DNA preserved in a single finger bone. Since then, continued excavation has revealed surprise after surprise about our ancient history. The Denisovans, along with Neanderthals, descended from an ancestral population that diverged from modern humans about 800,000 years ago, and then spread across northeastern Europe and Asia. Some Asian populations still carry Denisovan genes. One of these genes is found in modern-day Tibetans and accounts for their adaptation to life at high altitudes. One bone found last week in the cave turned out to have startling ancestry. Called Denny, it came from a woman, who was nicknamed, appropriately enough, Denny, whose mother was a Neanderthal and father a Denisovan. Last month, a team of geochronologists, these are scientists who specialize in determining the age of sediments, dated Denny at about 100,000 years of age. These results showed that not only did Neanderthals and Denisovans coexist in the same time and place, they were pretty chummy. Scientists suspect there are other sites waiting to be found where Denisovans lived, probably in Asia. Denisovan genes have been found in various Chinese ethnic groups as well. This work was published last month in the journal Nature. You have heard the interviews on our show about the New Horizons mission that flew past Pluto in 2015 and then recently flew past another Kuiper Belt object nicknamed Ultima Thule on New Year's Eve this year. The Kuiper Belt is a collection of icy, asteroid-like objects and dwarf planets past the orbit of Neptune, and Pluto is the largest object in the Kuiper Belt. The New Horizons mission continues to dig into the treasure trove of data from the New uh, Horizons Pluto flyby, and last week published in the journal Science new results that indicate the Kuiper Belt is quite different than expected. It appears to be missing small objects that solar system formation and evolution models predicted should be there. Typical planetary models show that 
4.6 billion years ago, the solar system formed from the gravitational collapse of a giant molecular cloud. The sun, the planets, and other objects formed as materials within that collapsing cloud clumped together in a process known as accretion. Different models result in different populations and locations of objects in the solar system. One goal is to try to determine how many of these asteroid-like objects there are and what are their sizes. That information can tell us details about the environment and history of the solar system billions of years ago. These objects are typically too small to be directly observed from Earth. But just like a good detective story, the team looked for clues left behind from long ago. They were able to count and measure craters on Pluto's moon Charon. Craters on solar system objects record the impacts of smaller bodies, providing hints about the history of the object and its place in the solar system as well as the small objects that hit it. The lead author of the research, Dr. Kelsey Singer from the Boulder Office of Southwest Research Institute, says, This surprising lack of small Kuiper Belt objects changes our view of the Kuiper Belt and shows that either its formation or evolution, or both, were somewhat different than those of the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Perhaps the asteroid belt has more small bodies than the Kuiper belt because its population experiences more collisions that break up larger objects into small ones. Dr. Ivan Lyachko is CEO and co-founder of Phase Genomics, a startup biotech company funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The company is using a new technology that allows researchers to pair plasmids, which are small, non-chromosomal pieces of DNA, with the bacterial species carrying them. This technology is key to identifying the species in our microbiome that can carry antibiotic resistance genes. In the following interview, Dr. Liachko describes the method and its important implications. Welcome to the show, Ivan. I would like you to start off by talking about your company because you are the founder and CEO of a startup company called Phase Genomics, and you you've come up with a really clever method that I'll just introduce by saying it allows you to do these really amazing sequencing efforts of microbial populations, which I've discussed on this program before, but at the same time, you can link different types of genetic material from individual species. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got the idea and exactly how it works. Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Um, so I guess that sort of the the underlying um, problem that we're trying to solve is that you know genomes are a part of all living things, right? They're sort of like blueprints of life, um, and they consist of these extremely long DNA molecules, DNA, you know, DNA sequences, and um, 
sequencing DNA from things has been in the news quite a bit. It's popular now, right? Uh, but while it's easy to sequence things, uh, it's actually very difficult to put genomes together out of sequencing information. So what I mean is, imagine if you have a book, right, like a huge book, and you take all the pages and you shred them into little tiny pieces that are each like a couple of words each, right? And then if you were to like read those little pieces, you can say, well, I read this book. But not really, right? Because you just read sort of like the content. Um, but you need to actually put them together into the right order uh, and orientation to actually make sense of it. And so that's really the challenge in genome sequencing these days. Um, you know, each genome project becomes like a crazy jigsaw puzzle problem where you're trying to assemble a sequence um, of letters that is maybe a hundred uh, million letters long, like a typical kind of mammalian chromosome is, you know, something like a hundred million letters. But you're working with much shorter pieces of DNA. So normal sequencing machines only produce sequences like up to the, you know, some technologies do a couple hundred base pairs at a time, letters at a time. Um, some technologies go further, a few thousand, tens of thousands. Um, but no matter how long you go, you still have this problem that you have to assemble a very long sequence out of little tiny short sequences, right? So it's this crazy jigsaw puzzle problem where like half of the puzzle is the sky and there's all these like repeated sequences and they, they make it very difficult um, to do this. Now, when you're working with any kind of microbiome sample, right, microbial communities are, you know, they're, they're part of us. They're all, over, all around us in the environment and our bodies. But um, the vast majority of microbes that occupy them are either extremely difficult to culture or just they won't grow by themselves. They require the other players. They grow as a community. And so you're stuck sequencing mixed populations. So you're not sequencing. It's very difficult to isolate them separately. Right. So, so if what you happens are, when you're se Sorry, I was just going to clarify. So if you are um, sequencing a human's genome, that's one book, and you talked about shredding the pages of the book. But now if you are sequencing a microbial community, you've got a whole library of books, and they're all shredded. Exactly. And so you have to put them all together in not only the right order, but in back into the right book. And even worse, you have other little bits of DNA in those bacteria that aren't part of their chromosomes, and somehow you have to make sure that those little magazines, if you will, get stuck into the right uh, volume of the right species. Exactly. So imagine you have a microbiome sample that has a hundred different species coexisting together, and one of them has a virus, and you're really interested in, like, who is this virus infecting? Where is it coming from? Because a lot of viruses, or the same thing can be said for plasmids, which are these little circles of DNA that float around, kind of from, jump from species to species. If you were to sequence the DNA from this population, as soon as you purify the DNA, you lost the ability to tell where did this virus or where did this plasmid come from, because it's a separate piece of DNA. And who knows whether it resided in cell, you know, in species A or in species B. And so these are some of the big challenges. You know, it's like you said with the, with the library. Sometimes I use the jigsaw puzzle metaphor where you say, well, you, let's say you took, you know, a hundred jigsaw puzzles, dumped them all together, mixed up all the pieces. Now you not only, not only is it hard to assemble each jigsaw puzzle, you don't even know which pieces go to which, uh, which puzzle, right? And then, and then all the stuff with plasmids, uh, with viruses, it's extremely difficult with normal sequencing methods to connect it all together. And so before so we go on, was, 
let me just clarify mm -hmm. again that the reason that knowing the origin of the viruses and the plasmids, these little bitty independent pieces of DNA in bacteria, the reason that's important is because we can find genes for antibiotic resistance and other characteristics that might be important from a medical or other kind of clinical perspective. Right. So um, one kind of one kind of important medical problem is that, you know, the rise of antibiotic resistance. And part of the reason why it is so it is spread uh, so quickly is because uh, oftentimes, most of the time, it is carried on these mobile elements, these mobile DNA pieces like plasmids that really don't have a particular, like, home. They can kind of jump around and exist in different species. So bacteria share these mo mobile elements, um, and it's called horizontal gene transfer. And so, uh, you know, or you can have a virus that, like, infects one bug, grabs some DNA, and then infects a different bug and moves it that way. Or there's some other methods but, uh, of doing it. But so what happens is, let's say you have uh, sort of a normal uh, sample, like a normal person who is just kind of carry it doesn't necessarily have any kind of antibiotic things going on. Um, somewhere in his microbiome, there might be a very rare microbe that is carrying one of these plasmids. Uh, for antibiotic resistance, that carries a gene for antibiotic resistance. And if you give this person antibiotics, you'll kill off all the bugs that don't carry this plasmid, but the, the little guy that does will share it with a few others, and now you have a, basically a population of, um, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and because you've killed everybody else, they just take over, right? And so this is part of why. And the other problem is, if you have multiple antibiotic resistances, um, they will kind of accumulate in the same organisms, and now you end up having superbugs that are resistant to everything, right? Like, you know, eight different um, antibiotic resistance plasmids will jump into one organism, and suddenly you have a superbug that you can't kill with anything. And from an evolutionary right. perspective, sorry, from an evolutionary perspective, is that because these so-called superbugs have um, been exposed to multiple antibiotics and so they accumulate multiple resistance genes? Yeah, that's usually what it is. I mean, the, the rise of uh, antibiotic, antibiotic resistance is clearly caused by human overuse of antibiotics. Um, and so that's sort of what's causing it. And it's put, putting this, like, very, very strong evolutionary pressure on bacteria to figure out any way they possibly can to resist, right? Because or or they just die, um, and so they so mobile elements like plasmids present a quick way of them kind of surviving this. Because if there's a little plasmid with antibiotic, antibiotic resistance jumping around, anybody who gets it doesn't die, right? Which <laughs> and is so that's um, why they take over. Yeah, so, lots of natural selection for not dying. So in your microbiome, yeah. there's hundreds, as you said, hundreds of different species, and I would guess that a lot of them accumulate resistance genes because all of us have been exposed to antibiotics throughout our lives. So it seems like some of those species carrying resistance genes aren't going to be harmful to us, but some of them would be harmful, potentially. Sure. I mean, and, um, you know, in our case, like, kind of, it's always seen from sort of a clinical light, so we only really care about them if they are a problem, yeah. right? Like, so there's sort of a bias and kind of <laughs> what what gets in the news, um, and so yeah, I mean they they certainly they certainly accumulate them um, on their own without us forcing it. So right, antibiotic antibiotic treatment doesn't 
doesn't change like sort of their behavior. It just it just selects who gets to survive and who doesn't, right? So so for example, if you have them sharing mobile elements, sharing all these plasmids, um, in if you're not treating the the person with antibiotics, then they they can just as well have one or they might just lose it, right? So these plasmids, if there's no selection for them, they'll go away after a while. Um, and so, you know, so if you if you kind of don't abuse the antibiotics, um, you can, in some cases, reduce kind of resistance. Um, but it's just that, you know, antibiotics are so widely used that... <laughs> Like the stuff's all over the place. Right, right. So this is a big deal for your startup company because you can potentially identify bugs that each one of us would have in our microbiome that could predispose us to getting these um, resistant forms proliferating after antibiotic treatment. Is that right? That's right. And so one of, I mean, there's a kind of a, a more high-level question, which is just, People in the research world, they just don't, because it's so difficult to kind of assemble these genomes and to kind of put these things together, that there's not a lot of, not a lot known about just kind of the basic biology of plasma transfer of, you know, which viruses occupy which host, you know, like if you go in the ocean, the ocean is full of viruses and ungodly numbers of unknown bacteria. And people don't just want to know who is occupying who for just for research reasons. But in a more kind of practical clinical space, it's extremely important to understand um, which antibiotic resistance genes or which plasmids are occupying which strains, because you will also have, you might have one bacteria that you're interested in, like, um, you know, staph or, or MRSA or something. And then, um, you know, plasmids will, you know, base, whether or not a particular strain of that organism has the plasmid or doesn't, can change its status, uh, sort of its importance from a, from sort of a clinical perspective. One strain, if it has a, a particular gene, may not be a problem. A different strain with some other mutations elsewhere in the genome, if that has a plasmid, that might be a you know a very kind of important case. Right, and that's the cool thing. Maybe you can give us a twenty-five word description of how you manage to connect those two pieces of information, the individual bacterial species and the little piece of independent DNA that is its plasmid or even its viral occupant that um, confers or carries the resistance. Sure. It may not be 25 words, (laughs) but essentially um, what we do is we can tell which sequences are physically touching each other inside of a cell, so in three-dimensional space. And so it was actually a repurposing of a method that was originally uh, designed to look at how a genome folds, right? So your genome is a very long, it's a very long molecule, um, like imagine like a super long rope that gets like squished and packed in like a little sphere. And so it's all curled up. It's right. There's a lot of three-dimensional folding that goes on in there. And if you can introduce a chemical that acts kind of like a glue, uh, that goes inside of this, uh, inside of the cell, and it glues together DNA sequences that are physically next to each other. Okay, and then um, you can actually sequence them. You can actually sequence the junctions, and you know which two sequences in a given pair are touching each other. And because you do this kind of millions and millions of times simultaneously, you're able to count how often every sequence touches every other sequence. And so um, 
And the sort of the way our technology works is it was originally designed to look at sort of how the folding is happening inside of a cell. But you can use that information to say, to tell you which sequences are coming out of the same cells because anytime two sequences got glued together, the gluing happens inside of a cell. And so those two sequences, if they interact, they must have been in the same cell at the beginning. And so we can take this data and we can look at it and we can ask which DNA sequences are interacting together and which DNA sequences are not interacting together. And we can use that to separate the sort of mess of these sort of jig- jigsaw puzzle pieces. So it seems like and this is even an order of magnitude more computational power necessary than to overlay all those small fragments of sequence DNA. So what's cool is it actually turns out that you need a lot less information oh, for this part. Okay. Actually, the reason is that when you're doing um, this method of ours, you're connecting dots. So in order to actually assemble the genome, that's a very difficult computational process because you have to you have to sort of coat uh, the entire chromosome of every organism with all these reads, right? Like right. cover the entirety of it so they can be overlapped together right. and stitched together. But when you're doing um, our method, you're essentially connecting those pieces to each other. So you only need you're like connecting the dots. So you only need like a fraction of the amount of sequencing information. It's actually a much easier problem than the underlying uh, oh, like the building of the sequences. That's fascinating. Okay. So I'm, I'm worried that we're going to run out of time before I get to ask you for some application. And I think this is what a lot of our listeners would be really interested in. Could you give an example or two of exactly how you would apply this for a biomedical situation? Sure. So in the, in the case of a biomedical situation, right, you can imagine you, you know that you have some form of infection um, and you're trying to understand sort of the, where, where particular um, plasmids are coming from or um, does this infection contain, let's say it has um, eight different genes for antibiotic resistance. You want to know are all eight of those in the same cell, in the same species, or is it eight different strains that each have one, right? Right. And the difference is that if you have a case where there's eight different strains and they each have one mutation for, that, for some antibiotic resistance, then you can treat it with a combination of antibiotics and kill them all. But if all those mutations are in the same cell, you no longer can do that because that bug will, that's a super bug and that'll be resistant to everything. And... Um, and it's really what it, the, the problem is that the only way to get to that kind of information now is to culture these things. You have to you have to grow them. But a lot of um, a lot of organisms like tuberculosis, for example, take weeks and weeks to grow. And so, culturing, trying to separate a mixture by culturing, sometimes works. I mean, that's what people do like a lot these days. Um, but in many cases, you simply can't do it because either they won't grow or they take forever to grow and you need a faster um, intervention. Right. And I've spoken with several people on this show in the last several months who do this kind of sequencing to identify unknown bacterial species and to characterize a lot of diverse microbial environments like in the house or in the soil or something like that. And mm-hmm. it strikes me that in the microbiome now, we're probably 
accumulating enough data in terms of the species that there's fewer and fewer unknown species. Is, is that correct? Uh, well, that, that has to be correct because more and more of them are being discovered. So the number of unknowns is definitely coming down. The problem is we've only barely scratched the surface. So because it's, you know, people, people want to discover what's out there, but if we go and we grab a piece of soil, um, 99 plus percent of it, of the microbes in there have never been discovered yet. And part of the reason is that we just can't, we, we can't put those genomes together from a complex mix. And that's one of the things that our technology solves is that you can take a sample from whether it be soil or water or, you know, poop or something like that, and you can simultaneously de- separate apart, you know, hundreds of genomes, and you, you end up getting, you know, 50, 100, 300 genomes that are completely new and nobody's ever sequenced before from a single sample. Um, so that's actually really hard to do by kind of conventional methods. Right, yeah, so you have an extra piece of information that helps you put these different species into their individual cubby holes, if you will. That's right. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Well, Ivan, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I will link to your website and to several of the articles and papers that I read about your technology. It sounds like it has a lot of applications, and one that we didn't even get to talk to, but I'll, I'll put a link on the website, our radio website, is um, some work that you are starting to do involving the microbiome transfer between moms and their babies. That's right. So that that sounds fascinating, and maybe we can talk another time about that. I'd love to. Okay. Thank you so much for having Great. me. Great. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Ivan Liachko of Phase Genomics discussing the application of his new technology, which allows the simultaneous identification of a bacterial species in the microbiome and the plasmids that that species carries. This method offers new avenues for treating antibiotic-resistant infections. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett, and I produce this week's show. Additional contributions from Joel Parker, who engineered this show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Johann Sebastian Bach's Prelude in C Major. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Well, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bennett. 